and welcome to the Doctor Who Show Hot Takes. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And this week we are looking at Doctor Who Series 11, Episode 8, The Witchfinders. How are you, Rob? I'm really well, Dave. Um, really well. I've, I've had a flex day today from work, so I got to watch Doctor Who at my leisure, uh, which may be a little different to how you've watched it today. <laughs> and um, I've, I've had quite an enjoyable day, all told. Oh, well, I'm, I'm pleased for you. <laughs> but yes, here we are with The Witchfinders, uh, directed by Sally Afrahamian. I think. Afrahamian, yeah, that Afrahamian, looks right, yes. Yeah. And, and written by Joy Wilkinson. The first time, as I said with uh, Steve on our monthly show, we've had two uh, women involved as director and writer since Enlightenment back in the uh, classic era. Well, there you go. I hadn't realised that, but of course you're right. Yeah, I mean, we've had other women directors, we've had other women writers, but doing it on the same episode? No, this is a, uh, this is a first since, uh, when was Enlightenment? About 83 or so? Uh, thereabouts, yeah, 82, yeah. 83, somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah. So there we go. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, Rob, I'll start us off uh, and give you my word of the week, and that is audience. Audience. My word of the week, Dave, is belated. Interesting. Very mm. similar to your word last week, mate, I think. Was it? Oh, gosh, I hope I haven't used the same one. <laughs> no, it's not the same word. It's just a, a similar concept. Ah, uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, we will. You, you may have uh, tricked me there. So, Rob, <laughs> look, shall I give you my quick hot take view of this having just watched it in this Canberra hotel room in the last hour please please do I thought this was a wonderful fun camp perfectly structured 25 minute adventure that unfortunately went for 50 minutes hmm okay I thought this was solid and didn't quite hit the heights I thought it had the potential to but it wasn't a disaster and it does continue the theme, for me at least, of, hey, look, Chibnall's not writing, so the episodes turned out okay. Yeah, I, look, overall, I did enjoy this. It was a fun watch, but there was a distinct change in my mood as I watched it. Mm -hmm. I started off having a lot of fun. I, I got that this was just a camp, fun, historical romp. Uh, I thought it was going to be sort of the Romans, uh, that sort of thing. But I did start, as it dragged on, to get a little bit annoyed with it. And at one point I actually did shout at the screen, um, will you just get on with it? And, <laughs> and then, it did, um, then it did sort of finish off well. So I thought that whilst it was just having fun, it was very, very enjoyable. Unfortunately, it realised about halfway through that it actually needed to have a plot. Mm -hmm. And there just wasn't enough of that to fill it. And that disappointed me. I agree with the comment you made, Rob. It could have been better. Fun, not as good as it should have been. Mm. And I'll just say, I had a shouting at the screen moment too that I'll get to later. But Dave, you're absolutely right. Uh, you called it actually when we had our last hot take. You said this next historical might go in a more fun direction because the other two had been pretty, uh, not grim, but pretty serious. Yeah. And, and all about, hey, let's just look stoic while history happens. This this did go in a completely different direction. So you, you, you called that, and I, I thought that was great, you know. Like, there was so much humour. James the First fancying Ryan. I was thinking, Dave's going to get a kick out of this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I did. And, and I have to say, since you've raised it, let, let's talk about that. It was done so well because people in the audience who get the signs or people in the audience who have done a bit of study of James the first and sixth and and know some of the rumors and some of the, the speculation would absolutely get that and get the joke and mm. they would get what he was talking about with Alfonso then they'll get the the nod and the wink to Ryan early in the episode and then it was 
brought up another level at the end. But if you were just a kid and you had no idea, or you're a member of the audience who had no idea, that would go completely over your head. Yeah. So it was really cleverly done, and I thought, yeah, a really fun way to do it. And I also thought it was wonderful to have a historical story where it's the male companion being hit on by a historical <laughs> character, not the, not, the, not the female. So I, I thought they could have subverted it by having the Doctor hit on by someone mm. um, during the course of this series, but no, they've actually subverted that by having Ryan hit on by King James the First and Sixth. Yeah, yeah, that was very good. Um, and look, before we get much further into this episode, I do want to add a bit of news to this. Uh, you may have seen this, Dave, that Amazon Prime dropped this episode early in the US. Um, and in fact, friend of the show and sometime uh, contributor Mike Solko got to watch it uh, days and days early. And uh, there's been this running joke out there that maybe this was retaliation for Kablam because Kablam was sort of, you know, an anti, an anti-Amazon <laughs> kind of thing. And next thing, within a week, Amazon accidentally drops an, an episode of Doctor Who uh, almost a week early. So... <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that in as historically happening in the past week. Uh, no, I didn't know that, but that's quite funny. Mm, yeah, so so Mike got to watch it early, and he was very good at keeping quiet about it um, and in terms of, you know, what he, what he thought. Oh, good on him. Rob, what did, what did you think more broadly? I've had your high-level concepts. Let's go into a bit, bit more depth. Uh, okay, look, I think the crew all got to do stuff, even Yaz this week. Um, when they sent her off at the start alone to check on Willa, I thought, oh, great, Yaz is actually getting a proper job. Um, but in the end, I think they all ended up with really good chunks of the story to engage with. That was, like, one of the first things I noticed about the story. Um, I'm not saying it was the Yaz episode at long last, but I did notice that early on. Yes, the regulars all did get to contribute something. Again, not as much as I think they all deserved. Again, I think that the four members of the TARDIS crew do struggle in the course of one story. Um, mm. You're right, Yaz did get to do something, but it was pretty perfunctory. And then she was sort of drawn back in. Ryan and Graham, again, got to do the Ryan and Graham banter. And I wonder whether it's just been coincidence that a lot of episodes have had that, or whether as they've started making these episodes, they've realised that those two have really good chemistry mm. and, and they've been actively trying to put them together more. Or was it something that Chibnall said right at the start, that this was a... A dynamic he wanted to be really important in the series, and he's asked authors to to, uh, to do it. I don't don't know whether it's happy coincidence or planning or a bit of both, but any time that Tosin Cole and Bradley Walsh are together is a really good moment. Yeah, look, I reckon through them having the family relationship, there was always meant to be something going on between the two, and uh, the the two actors, I think, just happily, you know, seem to to rub up against each other well, and and it's come out well on screen. Yes, um, in a way that I don't know whether there was an intention for a more flirtatious relationship between Ryan and Yaz, and that has been wound back because there maybe wasn't the chemistry between mm. the actor and the actress. Yeah, very true. You know, that there are times where you think, oh, they could make a good couple, but it's really not been played up at all. Yeah, so I don't know whether they're just wanting to subvert and, and say, you know, you can have a, a guy and a young lady travel in the TARDIS together and not want to hit on each other yeah. which is you know an important statement to make um or whether they did as i say just didn't feel that those characters actually did work together or the actor and act actress didn't quite hit it off and they've gone okay we'll we'll tone that one back and we'll maybe push this one forward i'm not sure mm. 
More broadly though, which is what you asked, I do have a couple of thoughts that could be um, on the more unpopular side of the ledger. Uh, they're probably not the kind of thoughts that people will hear on uh, other podcasts, maybe. <laughs> Um, but I do want to throw them out there uh, because they relate to women and gender and how that was dealt with in this episode. And I think it's worth talking about. Yeah. I, I think there were lines about being a woman that were a bit overplayed. I'm I'm from the show Don't Tell school. So they showed James the first being dismissive of the doctor because she's a woman. Um, and that's good. That's how it would be. That was really well done. I really liked that. I thought it was perfectly played. Yep, and that's precisely the kind of thing I was mentioning as recently as our monthly episode this past weekend. But I've been foreshadowing for over a year. I've been saying, you know, will they go into a situation where the companion is regarded as, you know, being a higher rank than the Doctor or or the companion gets focused on because this person from medieval times or ancient times or wherever it might be just assumes the guy is in charge, you know, and that absolutely happened here. And I thought, oh, well, this is, this is what I was thinking. This is good. But then they went and did something like the, oh, well, this would be easier if I was still a bloke line. And I thought, no, 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 that's overplaying it. You know, unless you think the audience are idiots, they've already just seen that your sex has made it hard for you, Doctor. And they know you used to be a bloke. You're not adding anything with the, oh, this would be easier if I was still a bloke line, except making yourself look a bit whingy, you know. And it didn't come up that many times from memory maybe only a couple but that's a couple of times too many when you're already showing it and you should have some faith in the audience to understand what they've seen and understand what's going on without needing a line like that i was just like ah, oh, why did you do that we've already shown it let me agree with you absolutely i as, as i said i really liked the first iteration where she showed it and jody did play it really well and she showed on her face how she was reacting and the character's uh, and her companions got to react back and you could see them, you know, embarrassed by this. And mm. Graham particularly played it, as he always does, you know, really well. He was showing that he was embarrassed by this. And, and, and all the rest of it was done really well. There was a bit of a sort of a follow-up with another character that I thought was okay. But yes, when it was just overstated, I thought, no, you overplayed your hand here. Mm. And I want to sort of broaden that and say there were a number of points in this episode, particularly as it went on, where I was sitting there thinking, no, show me, don't tell me. There were several instances of, let us stand around and explain the plot to each other, even mm-hmm. in what was meant to be the dramatic climax. Rather than doing stuff, the doc said, now I will do this, at which point this will happen, and then this will occur. And I'm like, no, <laughs> shut up and just do it. Yeah. <laughs> and this is what I was talking about earlier on. The characters were fun, the acting was good, the story was fun, it was a lovely romp. Just pause as they had to sort of drag out this 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 thing um, which would lead me on to another point but anything on that Rob? Uh, no, no, nothing except just total agreement and you know, I, I was saying you know, are they, do they think the audience is stupid? Well, you know, if not that, do they think it's, it's a young audience they're going for and they need to signpost all this stuff and really overstate things because they think I don't know, an 8 year old or a 9 year old needs needs that. I'm, I have no idea Well, Well, actually that leads me on to a different point I'll make, so I'll come back to my earlier point later. Mm -hmm. I think that it is very clear that they are going for a younger audience with this series. And I don't say that because the plot's necessarily simple or aimed younger. I don't think that's necessarily the case, although some are a bit simplistic. But what was clear is, once again, we went into history and there was a moral tale to learn. We've been into uh, segregated 
America and we've learned about the history of racism and the, the, the manifest evil of racism and how people start to push against it. We went back into partition India and learned about, again, uh, the way that segregation and uh, religious and cultural prejudice and, and, and fundamentalism and all that is, is divisive and evil. And there was a lesson in, in there in a dramatic episode. Mm-hmm. Here, once again, we get that lesson that you know, there, there is a thread of injustice in this episode. There is a thread where it, it, it is almost Pertwee-esque mm. in terms of being a science versus religion story and a science versus religion moral where the doctor came very very close to actually advocating a very atheistic view of the world which uh, i don't have a problem with that all personally and mm. i think it does uh, sit very well with the, the show's history i mean pertwee in particular uh, but but yes i think i think that there is a desire here for children to go away and on one level have learnt a lesson and on another go oh I want to learn more about this King James character. I want to learn more about witchcraft. I want to learn more about the witch trials. Mm-hmm. As I said before, it's it's something I love. It reminds me of me going in, as a 10-year-old going, I want to learn about the French Revolution. I want to learn about the Crusades, etc., yeah. etc. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I'll just follow up that initial comment on women with, a, with another one because it does relate uh, in, a, in a similar way. It's interesting to me, Dave, that in an episode that was trying desperately to establish how tough it was for women in this era, making Becca Savage a strong woman in charge of the town and basically judge, jury and executioner, was that maybe trying to have their cake and eat it too? Because it's really tough for women and women don't get taken seriously. Oh, except for this one who the king takes very seriously and who drives the whole plot along. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to say there have been strong women all through history and women doing extraordinary things and women who have done some tough stuff. So I'm not saying it's unrealistic. I just wondered if employing a woman like that didn't undercut the story a bit. In other words, if you're playing it as it's really tough for women in this era and they're getting tried for being witches and all of that, it's super valid. Then why not have a guy condemning them to death? Have, have him in absolute glee at killing witches. And I guess the king was doing that to some degree. But he was comical and caricaturesque in, you know, his battle with Satan. You know, if he had a real nutcase bloke in that in that role, it might have been harder hitting and probably more historically accurate. Putting a woman in that role in terms of Becca is interesting on some levels. It mixes things up a bit. Yes, yes, I get that. But maybe it also takes away how powerful and dark this could have been if we really wanted to go down the historical path. Here it was just a woman sticking it to other women. Yeah, I agree with that. I actually hadn't thought of it from that perspective, but I had a very similar comment about Becca's character in that I thought, like you said, they were trying to have their cake and eat it as well, in that there were moments when she seemed to be a scared and naive woman sort of driven by circumstance and then there are other moments when the plot needed it where she was a manifestly actively baddie Mm. character and that all says to me that i think what uh joy wilkinson is going for here is the fun and the spectacle and if a character needs to sort of change on, on on the spot to serve that she's very happy for that to happen and that's a perfectly valid way of writing and it it just doesn't stand up to two blokes sitting down and analyzing it no no that that's very true and yeah look the, the way she did 
turn on a dime, as our US friends would say, was was quite surprising. He, on one hand, she's got a secret, and to keep her secret, she'll kill everyone in the village. She'll kill everyone she comes across to do it. That's really evil. But at other times, yeah, she didn't come across that way at all. No, no, there was a little bit of um, lack of through thread for her, I think. Mm, exactly. So having said how much I liked the way that they've had the fun and they, they've had a good moral lesson here and they, they've shown history in an interesting way and I'm very supportive of that. My biggest concern really was this this dragging out of the plot. Mm. Uh, to, to give you a couple of examples, there are only so many times I can hear the Doctor say the phrase, what happened, Becca, before I'm just tired of it. Mm-hmm. There are only so many times I can have James the First sit there and go, ah, you're a witch. And, and that was that was my, my shout at the screen moment. It was Dude, I get it. Move on. Like <laughs> I've heard you say that now seven or eight times. I've yeah. heard the doctor say, "What happened, Becca? Tell me." Six or seven times. It's like, no, no. Do something different. Have more plot. You, you clearly are just running on the spot for a yeah. large part in here. And there was again that that large sort of explaining what's going on to each other and just asking questions of each other around the circle. It, it there wasn't enough plot for this episode. Oh, I completely agree. And, you know, to, to skip forward towards the end, when the episode got really sci-fi, if I can put it that way, it started to lose me big time. I thought the idea of the tree being a key was a bit weak. You know, I'm sure there are people out there who absolutely, absolutely love that idea, but I thought that was really weak. And when Becca turned into the head Morax, the effect looked like she was one of the wooden people in Knock Knock. And I was thinking, oh, this has just got it all wrong, you know. And, and interestingly, as the Morax were locked away again in the earth, I started to get back into the episode. So I think it was just the way that I realised that that climax, up until then, the mud-filled zombies were quite scary and effective and the mud leaking out of Becca was good. Like when it came out of her eye, it was almost like stigmata, except it was like mud. And I was like, oh, this is great. But when she turned into something, uh, she just looked completely different to all the other zombies. I thought, oh, no, I think you've messed it up here somehow. It's an interesting decision. I agree with you that as the, the, the mud leaked out of her eye, that was gripping and interesting. And I was like, ooh, ooh what's going on? What's the solution going to be? But at the same time, it's interesting that in the previous historicals, the message has been that humans are the real monsters. Mm. Human prejudice and human hate are the real monsters. And in this one, when they were just about to go down that path, it's like, no, no, the real monsters are mud creatures. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an interesting choice. And, and I suppose, had they not done that, it's very possible us and others might be sitting there going, oh, come on, you've done that two times, give us something different. So I'm cool with them mixing it up. I, I didn't mind it. I kind of ran with it. My only criticism was it was a little bit, we've done this before, and if we haven't, every sci-fi show ever probably has. Mm. So it was a little bit unoriginal, but I, I kind of went for it. And certainly by the time we got to those scenes, I was grateful that things were actually happening. We weren't just standing around questioning each other, except until the Doctor stood there and explained the conclusion to us all no no if we stand here and then we do this then we'll do this and then this happens and i was very grateful that king james just went forward and attacked her at that point because <laughs> i thought you know the doctor was just going to talk her to death or something but yeah oh look i agree look i think they could have gone down the path of 
it was fear driving people and, and people were the the enemy and it, and they were just scared you know and, and all that sort of stuff and it still could have been made different to the earlier stories in this in the season it still could have been made in a in a funny way in parts mm-hmm. um but yeah, just just when Becca turned into, I'm a special effect. Look at me. I was like, oh no, maybe an eight year old will like this, but I'm not eight years old. Yeah, and that's not a criticism. No, as I've said before, although I don't think I've said it during our reviews this year, in my mind, a good review isn't saying if something's good or bad. It's saying what audience this is aimed at. And yeah. I agree. If I was an eight year old or a ten year old boy. This would absolutely have hit the mark. Absolutely have hit the mark. Mm. And I, I praise it highly for that. I'm not an eight-year-old boy, unfortunately. No, and Doctor Who's audience isn't made up of eight-year-old boys either. This is the thing. You know, uh, people are very quick to say, oh, you're not eight years old, so it's not for you. So, you know, just be thankful you're watching it at all. You know, shut up sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think, well, no, that that's a bit disingenuous because Doctor Who's audience is universal and it's large and it's people from 8 to 80 and anyone writing for the show knows that and knows they're writing a family show that needs to be a bit broad just as people who write Pixar movies know they're writing a movie for kids but adults are going to be there watching it too and they've got to throw stuff in for them and and make it and and just have that level in there that's a bit more uh highbrow and can be understood by adults as well and I think when Doctor Who loses that it can become a bit too basic yes it's it's the danger mouse school of writing Yes. Where, where, where everybody in the family can sit down and watch it and laugh at completely different jokes. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we look at the cast? Sure. Uh, support cast or TARDIS team? Let's go support cast first this time. Okay. You probably want to talk about Alan Cumming as King James first, I imagine. Well, look, I think we kind of have to, don't we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, he was fun. He was... I mean, Alan Cumming is a very capable performer. He's a very, he, he's got a very good sense of comic timing. He was playing here exactly the character that he wanted to play, and, and I thought the broad strokes of the character were pretty good and pretty accurate. Uh, it wasn't perfect. It, it, it was a caricature, but that's fine. Uh, Richard the First in the Crusades, going back fifty years, was a caricature. That that's the way these shows are written, and you know, never mm. mind Nero in the Romans, who is an <laughs> is an awesomely wonderful character, but about. 30 years older than the real Nero would have been and yes. <laughs> all of that. So let's, you know, I'm, I'm giving him a pass on that. That's Doctor Who. It's fun. Yeah. Uh, but but that idea of James being a very paranoid uh, and very diligent person was very accurate. He was re- notoriously paranoid. And all those stories about his background and his, his, his upbringing in Scotland absolutely are, are correct. And, and that is part of the narrative. Um you know, one one of the stories about him is when you look at the pictures of him, he seems to have these this sort of small head and these very large garments because he used to wear very heavily quilted garments, so it would be much harder to stab him. Mm. Uh, yeah, so that th- that that sort of character traits were very good. He was obsessed with religion and satanic stuff. He was heavily involved in witchcraft and you know all the King James Bible stuff and all the rest of it. So the broad strokes I thought were actually very good, and he was portrayed in a fun very camp way and i i give it a big tick yeah look he was he was chewing the scenery he was having a ball um he was a bit of a caricature but i guess we're not going for a deep character study when he's only one of seven or eight characters all needing to have a go this isn't an episode about him 
Um, did you find it weird that he was getting around in the mask at the start? And, oh, I've got to be very careful. But once the mask came off, he was mixing freely with everyone in the village <laughs> and no one was freaking out that it was the king. Sort of, but it was a very nice shorthand way to introduce the character and show that he was slightly camp, slightly theatrical. Mm. And I actually thought it was quite a nice opening scene for him. So I'm, I'm cool with that. And it reminds me of that line when he looks at their clothes and says, are you actors? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That, that, that stuff was very funny. I was, I was really enjoying the episode at that point. Yeah. Now, Siobhan uh, Finneran was Becca Savage. We've already spoken about her to some degree, you know, talking about she seemed one way at one moment and then she'd just turn on a dime sort of thing. But overall, I thought it was, you know, a good performance. She's a woman with a secret. She's doing terrible things to keep her secret, but maybe just a bit inconsistent. I thought she was a bit of a poor man's Miranda Richardson, if I was perfectly honest. <laughs> yes, I can see that. Um, I, I get that it would have been very hard to play the character because the character was so ill-defined. Mm, yes. It would have been quite hard to play, but I, I thought she did an okay performance with an okay written character. Okay. Uh, Tilly Steele was Willa Twiston. I felt she was a bit underplayed. She seemed a bit lost in the action at times. And maybe that's an accurate depiction of a peasant girl who suddenly gets mixed up in some some nonsense like this. I mean, I take that on board. But it made her a bit uninteresting to me. Um, and then at the end, the whole, oh, I'm going to be a doctor line. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I know it's that's meant to inspire and all of that. But it just felt a bit too cliche, cheesy, a bit messagey. Is messagey even a word? I don't know. I guess if this was a story from any other season, then Willow would have been paired up with the Doctor and been an extra companion as the other compa- as the actual companion goes off and has their th- third of the plot. When you've already got three companions, inevitably, if you're not going to sideline them, the companion substitute character is going to be a little bit light on. Mm. I thought she did fine with the, with the material she had. I actually quite liked the ending that she had. And, and, and I think you're right. It was a reasonably accurate portrayal. Um, yeah, fine, I'm happy. Okay. Um, the rest of the support cast, I haven't really got much to say about them, like Old Mother Twiston or Alfonso. They they, they didn't really have that much to do. Did Alfonso even have a line? I'm not sure that he did. <laughs> no, he just, just had a few, um, a few masculine looks at King James. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so shall we get on to the TARDIS team? Sure, where would you like to go first, Rob? Oh, look, let's start with Mandip Gill as Yaz, because as mentioned earlier, I think she got to do some stuff here. I think her scenes with Becca showed some care and understanding and a desire to help. I feel Yaz sort of came out a bit more as a character here, but as it's the eighth episode, it feels really late in the game to be making a difference on how she's perceived overall by by me, and I guess by people who listen to this podcast and comment on her as well. Uh, yes, again, look, I'm not disliking Yaz. Um, I think she's, however, just there. She's a plot function character. Um, I, I think that Mandip Gill portrays her perfectly well, but I don't think she rises her above the material in the way that her co-stars do. And look, we're eight episodes in now. I think I can say she has been the weak link of the season for me. Yeah. Yeah, look, I think that's fair. And and the amount of people who are saying that out there, it's not just us, you know, being down on Mandip Gill. I think a lot of people are seeing it. 
Uh, Toast and Cole, your favourite, Dave, as Ryan. Um, I mentioned earlier that they all had something to do this week, and, and I guess Tosin was being paired up with King James, uh, literally and figuratively, um, <laughs> which was which was kind of fun. But maybe this was the week where Ryan did the least overall. He did have very, very little to do here. He was allowed to get some scenes where he was thinking on his feet and, and, and being a little bit nervous and, and all that, and they thought I played it well. Yeah, he, he did what he did with very, very little material. Um, can I also just also make the, I think, important point that when he realised that he was being hit on by King James, he just played that down as, OK, that's cool, um, no thank you, but you know there wasn't any sense, sense of outrage or disgust or, or no. anything like that, um, which even could have been done for comic effect, and I think it's good that it wasn't done that way. No, no, I, I think it was done quite accurately for how I think most guys of Ryan's vintage would, would act now. I think, you know, times have changed. Yeah, I thought that stuff was very well done. Mm. Uh, Bradley Walsh, of course, my favourite. Team Graham here. Um, I should just make a recording uh, for this every <laughs> week. He had great lines. Um, I think the Tarantino line at the end was a lot of fun. Um, he put in a solid performance. I, It's just like a, a big tick for me uh, week after week. I don't criticise Bradley Walsh for what I'm about to say. None at all. But... I think one of the problems I have with Jodie Whittaker's Doctor is what I'm going to call the Poochie problem. <laughs> I was waiting for a Simpsons reference in these hot takes. <laughs> we haven't had one yet, I don't think. Uh, but we're about to. to, to so, so to quote Homer from that episode, or, or misquote, I should say, ideally when the Doctor's not on screen, the audience should be saying, where's the Doctor? Mm. Because Bradley Walsh's Graham is such a good and such a strong character... When the Doctor's not on screen, usually Bradley is, and I don't miss the Doctor when he's around. Yeah, fair comment. So there was stuff in here, like when he's going out and doing the investigating, and he's the one that works out, oh, there are hollies, but there's no holly bush, so that you know that must be going this way, and he's the one who sort of inspires Ryan to think, think on his feet and, and everything. He was, do, he was doing that. And I don't think it undermines the Doctor per se, but... It does mean when Jody's not around, I'm not missing Jody. Mm, fair comment. Well, look, let's let's turn to Jody. Uh, I think we got a doctor this week who seemed a bit more switched on, more engaged, more wanting to have a fight, perhaps yes. than in past weeks. And it wasn't a a brilliant sort of performance, but it was significantly different to some of the earlier episodes. And I felt more in sync with what the doctor should be in general, regardless of who's playing them, regardless of being male or female, this seemed to have a little, little doctor spice sprinkled on top. If I can put it that way, she seemed a bit more doctorish. I did think she did very well in this episode. Uh, again, she, she, she struggled a little bit because of the, continually having to say the same lines and explain everything to each other, but she had some very good moments. Um, the only bit that I would like her to have played differently was the bit where she was being ducked. Mm. And I thought what she should have been there is absolutely confident. The companions could be terrified. The Doctor would be confident and knowing, and you're like, what's going to go happen here? And then she gets to do her trick and, and, and escape, etc., etc. Yeah. I'm thinking if that had been Pertwee or that had been Tom... Or, or Eccleston, there would have been that, that grin that, you know, I'm about to die and I'm having fun. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And which is also reassuring to younger kids as well. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was one scene that did stand out to me as being something I would have liked to see play differently. But no, I agree. She has got a lot stronger last week and again this week. Mm. 
No, I felt good about that. Uh, now, the Chibnall death count, Dave. It was 15. It's now 18. I counted Old Mother Twiston, Alfonso, and Becca Savage, of course, as uh, biting the bullet this episode. Uh, yes, which, once again, as we said last week, the deaths were very, very calculated to fall exactly where the plot needed them to amp up the uh, excitement. Yes, exactly. Very calculated. Now, before we go to the sports desk, I just have to make a comment for fellow Kevin Smith fans. <laughs> okay. And that is, I suspect, anybody else who is a fan of Kevin Smith's work, particularly Chasing Amy, I have no doubt would have, uh, when they heard the line, hello, my Nubian prince, shouted <laughs> out, what's a Nubian? <laughs> Which, if you've seen Chasing Amy, will be, I, I think you'll absolutely get it. If you haven't, you'll have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, but, and if you um, haven't, but, go and go and watch it. Yeah, go and watch Chasing Amy, or at least I'm sure if you look up on YouTube, what's a Nubian, you'll get the scene in Chasing Amy I'm talking about. Mm. Shall we go to the sports desk? Absolutely. Here we are at the sports desk where we look at the foul of the week, the MVP of the week, and the play of the week. Dave, which one of those three shall we start with? Oh, let's stick to the formula and go with the play of the week. All right. My play of the week ties into something we were talking about earlier, and that's not repeating the two earlier historically based stories this series. There was a line about, oh, let's not change history, but that rapidly turned into doing the complete opposite to those earlier episodes, and it was way more comedic than those earlier episodes. Um, I'd flagged in a recent episode of, of our show that, you know, a third episode that's all about, oh, this has to happen, let's just look solemn while it happens, you know, whether it's Rosa on the bus or Prem having to get shot, might have been a bridge too far, but instead they did a historically set story in a much different way. And, you know, it might not have quite came off, but I, I think that's good. I think it's showing that, you know, Chibnall's concocting stories, even if he doesn't write very good stories, he is planning the series and thinking about, well, we've already done two historicals like this, let's do a historical like that. No, that's fair enough, and I certainly agree. As a, as a lover of historicals from the 60s, I'm very happy with what they're doing here. Mm. Not my play of the week, though. Uh, I had two moments that are competing very much, so I'll, I'll give you my play and an honourable mention. Mm-hmm. My play goes to the moment where the grandmother was ducked. Okay. Because I thought that very quickly established that this is a very serious episode with real consequences, and I really felt as though we now knew what the episode was about, and it was very well done, it was very well played, and I thought that that really captured my interest at the start of the episode. Uh, But I have to also say the last 30 seconds I thought was really quite wonderful. Some of the most Doctor Who-ish stuff I've seen this series of the Doctor just smugly going into the TARDIS, quoting Clark, Arthur C. Clark, mm-hmm. and and then disappearing, and that look of bafflement on the King, and the look of wonder from Willard. I just thought that was a really lovely moment. So uh, that's my runner-up. But yeah, my play of the week is the uh, upping of the stakes with the ducking of the grandmother. Very cool. Which takes us to foul of the week. I'll let you go first. Uh, look, it's something I've already mentioned, Rob, and that is the Doctor saying multiple times, "What happened, Becca? Tell me." Uh, <laughs> It just got annoying. It got grating. I don't know if I was alone on that, but I was really getting annoyed by that as that middle part dragged out. Okay. For me, it was almost, and this is earlier when I said I was shouting at the TV, it was almost when the doctor said that she didn't believe in Satan or whatever the line was. 
and I was shouting at the TV, you met him when you were David Tennant. (laughs) (laughs) That crossed my mind. (laughs) You met him, Jody. Have you forgot? (laughs) Oh, my God. No, but that wasn't it. For mine, it was the special effect used on Becca's face when the Morax took over. It looked poor. Um, Why couldn't she have just been a human with zombie makeup? You know, by keeping the noblewoman hair, she still would have stood out amongst the zombies who all had, like, peasant hair. You know, she still would have looked unique, and I think she would have looked more more menacing by being human, but, you know, zombie-like, than, than just a special, Oh, look at me, I'm a special effect. Yeah, fair enough. And your MVP this week, Rob? I think we're going to get a snap here, at least I'm hoping we are, with Alan coming. Yeah, I think so. I'll, go, I'll say snap. Okay, he just, as I said, chewed the scenery, had a ball, wanted Ryan to be his Nubian prince. Um, (laughs) You can't watch this episode and not react to his performance, so for me it was like a no-brainer. Yep, no, I have to agree, I echo everything you said. Alrighty, let's move on to word of the week. Uh, I'll go first here with belated, and simply I think we needed episodes like this earlier in the lineup. You know, so it's it's kind of belated in the way it's arrived. I, I would have swapped this for arachnids, for starters. You know, maybe put something duff like arachnids towards the end of the series before things ramp up again. At least I think they're going to ramp up again. Um, I would have just got this up, up in the order a bit more. Yeah, or even just slotting it in maybe an episode earlier than where uh, Demons was. So that way you've got serious historical, romp historical, back to serious historical. Yes. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. Okay. My word of the week was audience. Ah, yes. Now, partly that's because we had an audience with King James the First and Sixth. <laughs> yes. But also because I think your enjoyment of this episode will really depend on what part of the audience you're in. I really did feel that if you were a younger person, this would have been a really fun romp that would have really captured the imagination. I know I would have absolutely adored this at the age of about 10. Uh, if you are somebody like us who's a little bit older... It would have been fun, and we did have fun. We have enjoyed this episode, I think we can both say, Rob. Yeah. But but its faults stand out a lot more to a uh, more cynical eye. Fair enough. Well, look, before we get to what our listeners thought, I guess that just leaves us to wrap up and, and actually give a score out of 10. Um, overall, I think there were lots of fun bits. I think it's a good setting. There was some really nice location work. There was good makeup on the zombies. James the First chewed the scenery in a wonderful way, like I've already said. For me, it was just let down by some effects work towards the end and a few unnecessary lines that hit the audience over the head in relation to things we were already being shown. It's like someone drinking a glass of water and then declaring, I've just drank a glass of water. It's like, yeah, we, we know. We just saw you do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Overall, I think it was competent, and I'm going 7 out of 10. I'm going 7.5 out of 10. Okay. It, it was very, very competent, as, as you say. There were large chunks when I was having fun, and I was thinking this is going to be an 8, maybe even a 9. Uh, it dragged back a bit in the middle and went up a bit at the end, and I think 7.5 is quite fair. Although I am a lot more than I was this time last season. I am looking back at my scores, thinking there's going to be quite a bit of revision. Yeah, um, I'm feeling three episodes from the end of the last series. I felt very comfortable with how I'd scored things. This series, uh, that's not the case. So I think our end of season review is going to be quite inter- interesting in that sense. 
Yeah, and look, I think it's because Chibnall or even his guest writers, who I think have been better than Chibnall in the writing department, none of them have written a um, a, a Doctor Dances or a, a Family of Blood or a Dalek or you know Midnight or anything like Listen, that. anything like that, yeah. So the highs that we have expected or come to to know in Doctor Who just haven't been there. So I think we do have to recalibrate a bit this series. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But that's a discussion for after episode 10. Hmm. Have we had some listener feedback this week, Rob? We have indeed, Dave. First up, we have Bernard D at Bernard JKD. Which finders, in the end, was really low quality fare? The first 40 minutes were fine Doctor Who, followed by 10 minutes of the worst TV I can remember, which read to me like a lesser BBC PDA novel from about 1999. Cumming and Jody were in fine form. Poor Yaz got no decent lines yet again. Uh, yes, I can totally understand where Bernard's coming from with that. I certainly agree with his points about... Uh, coming and Jody having the best stuff and Yaz not. Yeah, and yeah. for me, look, uh, that last 10 minutes, I guess that's where it all went a bit sci-fi and that's where it kind of lost me in places too. So I, I see his point as well. Yeah, it was the second last lot of 10 minutes that didn't work for me. So fair enough. Mm. We have a tweet here from Robert McKnight, who is at Rob underscore McKnight. And who was in the Doctor Who Club with me, as I'll always remind him, back in the 80s in oh, the local area. Yes. There you go. Thank you. Hello, for, Rob. Uh, thank you for writing in. He says, not sure what I think of the latest Doctor Who episode. Yes, I liked it, but it didn't rock my world. Will be interesting to hear what the Doctor Who show thinks. Mm. Well, hopefully you've heard it now, Rob, and that's what we think. Moving on, David Clark at David Clark 14 really enjoyed The Witchfinders. I thought it was Jodie's best episode so far. Alan Cumming was great as the King and Siobhan Finneran as Becca. Great makeup when she turned into the baddie. Overall, 8 out of 10. Still Team Graham. The Doc was my star player. Well, I disagree with a bit of that, but not all of it. No, but we certainly definitely said that it was a strong episode, one of the strongest yet for the Doctor. So I totally get why she was David's star player. Mm. from Mike Solko a regular contributor in many ways I had a chance to rewatch tonight after Amazon Gate 2018 the other day <laughs> this is another enjoyable episode in a string of them I can only imagine how traumatised the kids will be between the witches and the stop motion looking mud snake it would have been nice to have this episode earlier in the series since the personal stakes are low offset by solid adventure and comedy I like how much investigation has been used in this series. I would say 8 out of 10, highly watchable with no context needed. Yes, okay. it's a fair summary, Mike. Yeah, I think he liked it maybe a little bit more than us, but, you know, we're in the same ballpark. Yeah. Uh, a quick one from me here from Miss Mansk. Hello, Miss Mansk. We haven't heard from you before. She says, it was enthralling from the get-go. That is very true. I actually made a note here, and we haven't said, said this explicitly, but we've sort of discussed it, that it was right into the story from the start. Yeah. And it really did grip me from the start. And Yeah, I thought it was one of the strongest opening halves of anything in the series. Absolutely agree. And finally, from Wanda at Fishy underscore Wanda, another regular contributor. Thank you for writing in again. Another great episode. This should have been earlier on in the series. The story at the beginning really hit me hard and the last few minutes were a bit flat. However, I still loved it. We need more guest writers. Yes, we do. <laughs> and uh, wonder they're echoing some themes that we have discussed. Yeah, that we've discussed, um, that, that Mike discussed too. You know, he was saying it might have been nice earlier in the series. Wanda's saying that. I've been saying that this episode. 
um, yeah, just mix up those Chibnall stories a bit, maybe. Yes, yes. But look, some differences of opinion, but some, some themes coming through from us and uh, half a dozen listeners there. Yeah, no, it's really great stuff. I, I love the way uh, folks write into us. Now, next week, the episode is called It Takes You Away. It's written by Ed Heim, which means, yes, another non-Chibnall episode. Uh, Chibnall does return for episode 10, though, so don't get too excited. Um, and the blurb for it runs, On the edge of a Norwegian fjord, in the present day, the Dr. Ryan, Graham and Yaz discover a boarded-up cottage and a girl named Hannah in need of their help. What has happened there? What monster lurks in the woods around the cottage and beyond? Well, that's interesting. Norway is a beautiful country, mm. and I just hope that they can't go through a full episode set on a Norwegian fjord without some mention, even if it's just a hint or a reference, to Slarty Bartfast. <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely? That would be now, before we go, I'll just add that this story, I believe, was filmed during production block one with the woman who fell to earth. So I'm not sure if we're going to see a different Jodie next week because she was back in the first production block when she made It Takes You Away. Um, that's going to be really interesting. That's not something I've paid much attention to all series, but I have noticed it for this uh, coming story. Oh, OK. There you go. Something to uh, watch out for. Indeed. But until then, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.